We recorded this episode on January 11th. Days later, at 9.04 a.m. on the 18th, a forest defender was killed by the police during a massive raid of the forest. Manuel Tehran, known to the community as Tortuguita or Tort, was in a tent on a public park parcel when they were shot and killed by the police. A press release from Defend the Atlanta Forest states that, quote, heavily armed DeKalb police, Atlanta police, and Georgia State police shut down Wilani People's Park and nearby streets before entering the tree line with guns drawn and heavy machinery poised to continue forest destruction. Other forest defenders were forced to flee while being hounded by police dogs. Seven more activists were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism during this brutal raid. Domestic terrorism charges carry a possible sentence of 35 years in prison, and so far, 18 forest defenders have been handed down these charges for engaging in civil disobedience and direct action to stop Cop City. The first round of charges came during the prior sweep by Georgia State Police in December, during which they used tear gas, pepper bullets, and rubber bullets against protesters for simply being in the forest. It's important to note that law enforcement failed to notify the public before conducting either of these violent raids. Calls for an independent investigation into this killing have been growing, as the version of events publicized by the police seem highly questionable. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation claims that there is no body camera footage from the killing, but images of the SWAT team show multiple officers wearing body cameras. I want to read from a beautiful tribute to Tort that was shared widely on social media. Quote, They spent their time between Atlanta, defending the forest from destruction and coordinating mutual aid for the movement, and Florida, where they helped build housing for low-income communities hit hardest by the hurricane. They were a trained medic, a loving partner, a dear friend, a brave soul, and so much more. Since the killing of Tortuguita, we've seen more than 60 vigils in their honor all across America, from Philly to Minneapolis to Los Angeles. Messages expressing solidarity have poured in from around the world. Even the activists opposing the coal mine that would destroy a town in Lutzerath, Germany, have reached out with this message. Quote, the reckless police violence against climate activists in Lutzi and forest defenders in Atlanta shows the lengths that the police will go to to protect the interests of capital. This is exactly why we call for the abolition of the police, and why the Cop City project in Atlanta must be stopped. From Lutzeroth to Atlanta, we demand justice. Stop Cop City. What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. We're joined today by three activists who have been involved in the fight to stop Cop City, a $90 million police training facility that would bulldoze over a huge portion of the Wilani Forest in southeast Atlanta. They're part of a broad coalition of activists without centralized leadership who have come together to resist this development and defend the Atlanta Forest. This struggle is truly remarkable in that it brings together folks fighting for environmental justice, an end to white supremacy, and the abolition of militarized police forces in America. So we are joined by Kamau Franklin and Tree, 
could I have you guys introduce yourselves and just uh, say a little bit about your background and, and what you're doing here with this movement? My name is and I am originally from Mexico. And I've been in the diaspora displaced many times and ended up in the United States 15 years ago and in Atlanta, Georgia for 13 years. I uh, joined this fight to protect the Fendi Forest and stop the construction of Cow City since the beginning, since the 2001, uh, the spring of 2001. Mm-hmm. I'm also a liaison, I have been a liaison uh, or a bridge with, between um, the, the people in Atlanta, the, the movement, and the Muscogee people in Oklahoma. Wonderful. That is perfect introduction. Thank you so much. Kamau, could we hear a little bit about you? Sure. Um, my name is Kamal Franklin. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. I've been a community organizer for over 30 years. Um, I also, when I was in New York, was a practicing attorney for a while. I moved to Atlanta about 12 years ago. Again, as part of my organizing, it's really been usually about fighting for self-determination for black communities, fighting against, um, once I sort of learned and understood, fighting against capitalism and capitalist development, Again, organizing on issues of black folks controlling institutions, organizing against police brutality and police harassment and over-policing of the black community. Here in Atlanta, I was the founder of an organization called Community Movement Builders, which has been organizing around the issue to stop gentrification and around uh, policing. And we also do a lot of what we call sustainability work here in Atlanta. Uh, and we too have probably been in this movement since the very beginning when we heard about the fact that the city of Atlanta wanted to construct this monstrosity, uh, our organization joined with others on the ground to do this work. And lastly, I'm the co-founder of a media organization called Black Power Media. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's so, so good to have you here. Uh, Tree, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tree. Um, I'm from Georgia, mostly my entire life, an Atlanta resident. Uh, I'm here um, as a part of the Sorry campaign, uh, stands for Stop Breeds Young, which was the original contractor hired to do the destruction of the Wheelani Forest, who is no longer involved in the project. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank all of you for being here to help me address this topic. This is such an important struggle, and I'm really, really impressed by the work that you folks are doing to resist this development. And uh, yeah, we have a special drink today. It's the Stop Cop City Cocktail, <laughs> and it's made with bourbon whiskey with blueberry shrub, which I made from scratch, which, yeah, it's a really, really delicious ingredient, elderberry syrup. And then Zerbin's Austrian Stone Pine Liqueur. I actually used green chartreuse for that, um, but you can also use more whiskey. So we'll have that recipe in the show notes. But yeah, cheers, guys. I uh, can't wait to dive into this with you. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. <laughs> All right, let's get right into it. What is Cop City and why are you folks so committed to stopping this development? Cop City is an idea that came after the 2020 uprisings uh, from the city of Atlanta, the Atlanta Police Foundation, and various corporations and institutions in Atlanta as a way, in our estimation, of kind of giving the, the police some kind of reward um, or lifting them up when the conversation in the air was around defunding the police and abolishing the police. And so we think this boondoggle basically has 
no other purpose whatsoever in terms of uh, its origins, let's say, than to try to give the police something because the narrative was going against them. But in its development, the Cop City facility is really about two quick things. One is to stop movement activity. So this training center is meant to stop organizing and grassroots movements and uprisings similar to 2020. And two, this training center is to continue to expand the ability of the city of Atlanta and other places to harass, victimize, brutalize black, brown, working class, poor communities as Atlanta continues to gentrify. And the unique thing about this city, I'll wrap up on this, is that it'll be the largest training center of its kind in the country. It'll have military grade training facilities. It'll have over a dozen shooting ranges, a Black Hawk helicopter pad, explosive testing areas. Um, it's being funded to the tune of $90 million, $60 million, which was raised by private corporations, $30 million being given by the city. And it's all being done in the middle of a black and brown working class community. That's an excellent synopsis. Did any of you other folks want to add anything to like the basic explanation of what Cop City is and why you're trying to stop it? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I think um, one of the most important things Kamal just said is that it's meant to expand policing globally. Uh, so Cop City, and this point's made over and over again throughout the timeline of this movement, is that it's not a local struggle. It will affect uh, working class people and people of color across the globe in this attempt, you know, in this reaction to the George Floyd uprising, and more specifically what is so disgusting about it, um, beyond the fact that it is a city for police officers to practice killing people, is that it is being funded by Atlanta, by Atlanta businesses, by the city that has prided itself on this faux progressivism as the city too busy to hate. It's called itself, you know, the city in the forest is kind of like blooming ecological metropolis, post-racial paradise is how it tries to present itself, but is making its stance clear. They are with the police, they are with capital, and all of that other stuff that they claim to, to care about doesn't actually matter. What's important is the ability to maintain power and suppress the working people. Wow, absolutely. That was kind of a great segue to talking about police militarism, both as it relates to the development of this urban warfare training facility and to capitalism more generally. I was hoping that you folks could speak a little bit about connecting the dots between police militarism and capitalism. The connections are clear, that the the police, for the most part, serve as the public army for private interest. The police's main role, is, as, as I'm sure has been talked about on a show like this before, is to protect private property and to do the bidding of the development class and the capitalist class. And part of protecting private property is also to round up and to harass and to arrest and to imprison what it considers to be excess labor and what it considers to be potentially uh, communities that may engage in uprisings and may uh, go against the capitalist ethos and ethic, and particularly what our, the black community, which itself has been the primary victim, I would say, of capitalist um, disaster, let's say, in terms of how it expressed on the larger black community. Mm -hmm. So I think harassing and controlling 
poor people, black and brown communities, again, communities that they think will fight back one day is a primary goal and interest that's instilled within the police, even if, of course, the public narrative is never directed or talked about in such a way, it's clear that the police do the bidding of private capital at the expense of the masses of people in this country. Absolutely. And actually, the first episode that we did was about the origin of police forces and of the coal and iron police in Pennsylvania, which were specifically created to protect business interests. So yeah, this from the get go, police forces were created to protect the interests of capitalists. And we are seeing that now continued in this form. And we're seeing like, a desire to expand upon that even after all of the Black Lives Matter protests, which is wild to me. And in the South, the origins of policing come out of slave patrols and slave catching, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we have that mixture of, particularly in the North, the origins of policing coming out of stopping labor movements and harassing labor, and in the Mm -hmm. South, around catching uh, enslaved Africans, Um, and returning them to their so-called masters. And so this is an institution rooted in, again, protecting capital, what capital sees as its own, and it's done so through the public purse, let's say, through the taxpayer's money. And obviously it's couched in a narrative of fighting crime, but really it's about protecting private interest. Absolutely. Does anyone else want to touch on the topic of militarized police forces and capitalism? So yeah, I think that this is a continuation of the the colonial project, and uh, obviously the people, you know, black and indigenous people, people of color, are suffering, and uh, you know they are making the city palatable and uh, safe and sellable for all the gentrifiers, who you know like people with wealth and uh, mainly you know white people, and uh, they are preparing to ramp up this because as we progress with the crisis on climate, Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be seeing more and more waves of refugees and we're going to be seeing dwindling of all the resources. And it's good to have, you know, already a trained and militarized police that can keep everything under control. And the South is a perfect ground for starting this test. So I think that this is a continuation of colonial project and capitalism, yes. Absolutely. Beautifully put. And just to keep expanding on that, it's kind of, you know, the land itself has already been used as a shooting range for the police department for a long time. So the residents in the area have already been facing this kind of the, the, the noise violence and the implied violence from the police. When you hear police shooting behind your house, um, you know, all throughout the day and doing bomb tests and things like that to, to any normal person, that, that is a threat. Yeah. As a threat, if you step out of line, this is the reaction you're going to get. And then even further, when we look into the history of police training centers like this, uh, like Cop City that's being built, if you have watched the documentary Riotsville USA, which I highly recommend, you see very clearly that these cities uh, for police are only built not with this idea of their idea of stopping crime, but solely to suppress mass movements of people, uh, mass proliferations of people fighting for a better life. Mm-hmm. Just to exemplify what Kamal was saying about the relationship of the police protecting property, that's very easily seen. And the other side of the forest, which is also at stake, not for the Cop City Project, but for the Hollywood Dystopia Project, where Ryan Millsaps and Shadowback Studios are attempting to build a movie studio. And even though they have been legally stopped 
from this, police still provide escorts for his bulldozers to move for his privately held bulldozers to move through and destroy trees against the law and tell people that it's not a public park against the law, which it is a public park and is accessible by anyone. Wow. I didn't know that. And uh, I wish I was surprised by that. (laughs) Jesus. So I want to talk a little bit about the legacy of racial oppression that precedes the current struggle to stop Cop City. Can you talk a little bit about this legacy, starting from the original indigenous owners of the land up till now? Just kind of give us a little bit of an overview so that listeners can kind of um, situate the struggle within history to a certain degree. <laughs> well, I'm not an expert on Muscogee and uh, U.S. history regarding indigenous people. But I mean, yeah, I think that this is a continuation of the history, horrible history that we have in the South and we have particularly in Georgia, Alabama and all the territories where, you know, the Creek Confederacy was uh, removed and fought back by uh, the colonizers that tried to always to um, destroy the, the relationship and um, also the the way the Muscogee people uh, related to the land and to to resources and so is you know it's clear that all these things that this land specifically Wilani Wilani forests have experienced you know after the removal of the Muscogee people is a brutal violence that is uh, continuing up to this day you know and we see like has not stopped uh, this legacy of uh, violence and. Uh, also, disregard mm-hmm. for the people uh, that is suffering this violence, like in this case, the neighbors of these neighborhoods, and uh, recently the three uh, cedars and the forest protectors. And so, I think that it's uh, it's so worrisome that it's, it's continuing and it's, it's not uh, been thought about, you know, and it's not been talked about enough. I think that historically, also, we have uh, seen military you know, being used against indigenous people and more recently mm-hmm. in recently in uh, Central America and South America still. This normalization of, uh, of like this military presentation of the police and their tactics, it's now like, you know, going to go to major cities and especially cities with black and brown people and indigenous people historically like Atlanta. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that is something that we really need to discuss in depth as we are like, you know, in this fight. And I've been, um, because we've been uh, very consumed, you know, we are very broad movement in Atlanta of many different, you know, groups and factions with many different interests. And um, we don't have too much capacity. We don't have too much resources. So we've been always consumed trying to either respond or trying to like, you know, support each other there, especially supporting the the people that has been um, at the forest, you know, and uh, defending the trees. And we have not really talked about these kind of issues, you know, and larger issues. I've been thinking about that and talking to people. And as we approach these two years, I think that we should totally discuss about these things and questions like the one you just posed. I, you know, didn't thought much about that, but, um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about Muscogee people later on, but mm-hmm. I think that 
Muscogee people, uh, when they came, they were worried and horrified about all this violence that is continuing, you know, in the land that it has been um, plantation and it has been a jail, you know. So it has suffered all this like uh, racial environmentalism and they dump all this trash and all these like toxic materials there. This is what they have done to historically to us, to black and indigenous people. And it's very unsettling, but it's like perfect picture of what is happening to us, to indigenous people and black people in, in the world everywhere. So I, I would like to talk more about that uh, with with the community, broad community to find strategies. And as uh, Tree said, this is a, a global fight. And, you know, this is where we are all connecting the dots and seeing that, you know, this Violence is going to be escalating more and more for many reasons. I wasn't prepared for the question, but I said some thoughts that come to mind. No, that was wonderful. Would anyone else like to speak to that legacy of racial oppression in Atlanta? I mean, the only thing, the thing that I would add around the racial oppression that's happened in Atlanta is part of that racial oppression is done so or led publicly by a black misleadership and or corporate mm-hmm. class. And so you've had black mayors and a black city council in Atlanta for over 50 years who basically have done the bidding of white economic elites, uh, mainly developers, corporate elites. And over the last 30 years, the type of violence that we've had is a displacement, an ethnic cleansing, again, led by black mayors and a black city council which has taken Atlanta from being a city which is over 60% black to one that is under 50% black at this current stage. A city which has basically disposed of its poor people by moving them out of town, that has turned the city over to private developers, that's led to the gentrification and pushing out of working class people, that is actually doing the uh, Olympics, tore down all public housing, uh, paid homeless people to leave. And so this city has been on a violent path in modern times, even after people celebrated what they thought were the victories of having black leadership. But black leadership that's married to capitalist ideas is no leadership whatsoever. And it's a leadership that just becomes a representation type of leadership, but still, again, does the bidding of the developers and the corporations and hides its hand by representing itself as something that uh, or a group of people who care about uh, the larger community, but who in the end are really thinking about their own careerism, moneying their own pockets, and again, serving the will of the capitalist class. Hmm. I just wanted to add that, yeah, it's um, very clear, you know, that uh, we've seen all this displacement. Uh, you know, indigenous and black people have been displaced. Uh, the Muscogee people were displaced, were forced out of their homelands. And uh, we still, like, as indigenous people being displaced all the time and uh, is being normalized. And, you know, like now the marriage of developers, you know, renters and all this political class is the people that is doing, you know, this bid now. So we need to really um, uncover that and call them out. Hmm. I also think it's definitely worth noting that where the Imagined Cop City project is, is barely a stone's throw from where Arashard Brooks was murdered by APD officer Garrett Rolfe during the George Floyd uprising, Mm -hmm. but was eventually unpunished for his deeds. And so, 
like Kamala said about the leadership of the city, it's not that this quote-unquote leadership doesn't see or understand the violent racism in the city. It's just not in their best interest as capitalist city leaders. Mm -hmm. A couple of you were talking about, you know, forced displacement. I wanted to talk a little bit about gentrification and the role that this development would play in exacerbating that gentrification in, in that area. Can you explain how that would, how that would work? I'll say that it, it's already started in that in the neighborhoods around um, home prices are increasing, new boxy, hideous apartment and condo units that are unaffordable to anyone are popping up in these historically working class neighborhoods, these historically black neighborhoods. Places that used to be homes to auto workers are now homes to executives for film crews. So the process has already started, and by furthering this project and making it as something that would seem to the type of people who will be replacing the residents as a safe place, as a not dangerous place, which to the process of gentrification, dangerousness is equated with blackness. Um, and so by creating a place that is unsafe for black people and unsafe for working people, and raising the home prices and pushing them out, they're able to, as you said, exasperate this gentrification process. Mm -hmm. I remember being canvassing this summer around Willani Forest, and uh, we went to these complexes, apartment complexes just around Willani, mm -hmm. and uh, we were talking to the neighbors, and, and you know, all of these like complex there and units were um, mostly black people there, and uh, they were very, very concerned and very worried because they uh, feared that they were going to be kicked out of all mm -hmm. their, you know, houses there and that that was going to be destroyed, the whole complex, to turn into something else, something um, more fancy uh, for, yeah, for like people with more money, people that come to the movie industry. And uh, they were seeing that the landowner of these apartments were doing all these like really aggressive things towards them. And he had already closed one complex near Willani. So, yeah, this was already has started and it's just going to be worse and worse as they uh, get their way and, you know, moving for, with completion of plans for for both, you know, building the Cub City and building the Hollywood studio there. So. Mm -hmm. And for those who are not familiar with Atlanta, south, the south and southern part of Atlanta, southeast and southwest Atlanta, are the last sort of vestige of uh, working class uh, and poor, again, black neighborhoods in Atlanta. Atlanta, which describes itself, again, as the black mecca. Uh, and they are completely right. The, the creation of the movie studio, I'm sure a redesign of how the forest operates or is, walking trails, um, connections to uh, jogging paths and trails will all be done with the goal of bringing in well-off residents. Over 90% of the new housing that's per that's created in Atlanta is designated as luxury housing. And so once the movie studio gets built, once the developers begin to put Cop City forth as a safe haven or something that will keep a neighborhood safe, the developers will do everything in their power, as they've done in southwest Atlanta, as they're doing in other areas, to market those areas to new homeowners and to basically sell homes that were valued no more than thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars eight or nine years ago 
to literally upwards of over $700,000, those houses will be marketed at. Um, and those houses are 1,300, 1,400, 1,500 row houses. Uh, but that's the kind of plans that are probably uh, going to be uh, done when they complete these projects or as they complete these projects. Uh, these developers are looking to move folks out. And the police, whether it's uh, the, in terms of the building of Cop City, but also the current police force, will be used as a tool to, again, harass residents of those areas, will harass via ticketing, harass via stopping and frisking people. Over 90% still of all arrests in Fulton County are black people. Uh, even though, as Nook noted earlier, the population has dipped under 49%. So we know that this training facility will, again, be used to train the police, to give the police more tactics and tools to harass and, dis- and, and disrupt and basically dislocate Black communities near where this project is being built. It's so disturbing. I want to kind of pivot to talking about the Atlanta Police Foundation. This is one of the most powerful police foundations in the country. They were instrumental in pressuring the city council to approve the plan to build Cop City. Can you folks touch on the role that the foundation has played in pushing forward plans to build this militarized training facility? The, yeah, the Atlanta Police Foundation is the primary driving factor. They collect donations. They're a nonprofit organization that subsidizes the police department um, in Atlanta. They collect donations from major Atlanta corporations such as Home Depot, uh, Waffle House, Delta, Georgia State University, many, many others. By selling these corporations, you know, the idea of corporate capital protection. Um, so they raise all this money and they're able to subsidize whatever money isn't already taken out of resident tax money. And and this is their primary, for them, the Atlanta Police Foundation, this is a, a recruiting tool. Following the George Floyd uprising, Atlanta police um, had a major, they would call it an issue, a, a staffing issue. Um, so their advertising went up. Um, it, they they lost a lot of people. A lot of people decided to quit the police department for various reasons. There was a, the blue flu. There was a, a massive police walkout at one point during the uprising, which was amazing. Um, uh, but but now they they are desperate to recruit people. They even have yard signs all around uh, the surrounding neighborhoods and and throughout Atlanta, even into downtown and and probably other parts of the city. They've resorted to yard signs. So to them, this is a recruiting opportunity to ensure to their investors that they can continue protecting their capital assets. Does anyone else want to talk about the foundation? Yeah, to add quickly uh, and, and echo Tree's point. So this, this uh, public foundation, this nonprofit entity, basically serves as the promotional arm of the Atlanta police. And they give away another way for private capital to give resources to to the police. The same private capital who during the uprisings claimed they were for Black Lives Matter, within a heartbeat, were giving upwards of $60 million towards this facility uh, in order to have uh, their interests protected in the long run. And so at the Atlanta Police Foundation, you know, which doesn't have the restrictions of the police department itself, 
can go out and collect that capital, can engage in its own uh, advertising campaigns to promote the police as the solutions to crime, uh, as solutions to public safety, who can go into different boardrooms, and not only boardrooms of companies, but actually of institutions, institutions like Spellman, institutions like Morehouse, which also sit on the board of the Atlanta Police Foundations. So what they've done is basically gathered all the elite institutions and corporations, at least a, a, a good portion of them, to have them be play a, a large role uh, in deciding or reconstructing a pro-cop narrative that's oppositional to the narrative that was happening after the uprisings. And so, uh, as Tree said, this is one of their main roles. And Cop City itself represents almost a star or a feather in their hat to get that built um, because then they can go and show other police foundations which are popping up across the country how to do it over there. They have international connections, the Atlanta Police Force, the Atlanta Police Foundation with the police uh, in Israel where they, they swap training, they swap mm-hmm. ideas. And so the same police which are oppressing poor working class people, black and brown and indigenous people here are learning their tactics and training and trading tactics with the Israeli police department, which is oppressing and suppressing Palestinians in their land. It's so disturbing. I mean, it shows you that all of these struggles are connected, that all these struggles against policing are so connected and that, you know, fighting this here is also fighting it elsewhere. I thought maybe I should just give an overview of a tree gave some of the companies that are contributing to the Atlanta Police Foundation. I'll read a more complete list. Home Depot, UPS, Wells Fargo, Delta, Amazon, JP Morgan, Georgia State, Waffle House, Inspire Brands, Chick-fil-A. Ridiculous, the, the kinds of players that are getting involved in this and, and propping up this this plan. So I would love to talk about any important tactics and strategies that the movement has employed, including the pressure campaigns that have been used against contractors. Since one of you mentioned that this was, quote, the most replicable action people can take outside the city, I thought it would be valuable to spend a little time explaining how these campaigns worked. There's been several pressure campaigns throughout the movement. I know Kamal can talk about CMB's involvement with pressure on AT&T specifically, which they were doing for a very long time, very impressively. And then on the other end, we have the Sorry campaign. Um, I said earlier, Sorry stands for Stop Reeves Young. Reeves Young was the original contractor employed uh, to do the destruction and quote-unquote construction of the project. This already kind of attests to the success of this strategy. They all, They bowed out very quickly. This company, Reeves <laughs> Young, they did attempt to release a statement saying that they had completed the work they were hired to do, but through a lot of preliminary research about the company and their size, um, it was very clear that they they don't do work that small. They had dropped their contract but attempted to save face. Um, So the Sorry campaign now focuses on Brassfield and Gorey, their subcontractors, and other people involved with the the project in general, uh, like Flock Security or the architecture firm. The idea behind this is basically that by promoting the, the availability of information about these companies, people who, who have offices around the country, such as Brassfield Gorey, has offices all throughout the Southeast and is also replicable to other like funders of APF, like Home Depots or Delta or UPS, who have offices and corporate headquarters across the country, 
um, people can imply, you know, the goodwill of humanity to kind of reach out to these people and say, hey, you are, you know, I don't know if you know this, <laughs> but you are implicitly involved in the, the destruction of, of my community or this community in Atlanta, wherever, wherever you live. Um, and people have done this around the country, reach out to these, to, to these corporations and to these companies. If people want a list of some of the contractors and companies involved, they can go to stoppersyoung.com. Um, and there's, there's a lot of information about the companies, some of the ones that have been documented there. Um, but that's kind of the, the general idea is, is that by creating freedom of information, freedom of knowledge, people, people can call these companies and talk to them and, and kind of invoke their humanity and say, hey, I care about this. Do you care about this? You said you, you know, like Canal said, <laughs> you said you cared about this in 2020 uh, when, uh, when it was kind of very popular to care about it. Do you still care about it now when it's, when it's not yeah. so popular? Did you really mean that? It's a great um, line of argument there to use when you're reaching out to these people. Uh, I love that. I love that you've been involved in these campaigns, and that's that's so important and definitely something that folks in other places can reproduce. Are there any other tactics or strategies that you folks would want to highlight that have been used by any aspect of the movement? I know it's a, such a diverse coalition and many different tactics are being used, implemented in trying to resist this development. I'm just wondering what other important things would you want folks resisting other kinds of projects to learn from your work from this campaign? I would say to people that, you know, there's been an escalation of tactics. Um, so at the beginning of To Stop Cop City, like uh, any traditional campaign, uh, there was a lot of focus on elected officials. And that involved a lot of, uh, you know, standard demonstrations at City Hall, demonstrations in front of corporate headquarters, which we should make sure people understand was met with police violence. Those demonstrations early on uh, were met with police arresting demonstrators, pepper spraying demonstrators, arresting and, and threatening to lose paperwork. That all happened. It never got reported by the media as violence by the police, but only demonstrators were arrested. And as the campaign went on and as the city itself adopted or passed a, the legislation to make Cop City happen, I think there, there was a diversity of tactics that were that was taken. People thought we should have given up or that the campaign was now over and that the city has won. But for people who became forest offenders, who actually decided to take civil disobedience and direct action and actually stayed in the forest itself to make the forest a central part of the campaign. So not only did the campaign highlight and talk about the police violence that this uh, type of facility would bring upon uh, black and brown communities and working class communities. But I think a, an important shift in focus was to talk even more so about the destruction of the forest and that, you know, Atlanta, which claims to respect those who commit acts of civil disobedience and honor those who commit, as they like to say, good trouble, all of a sudden was opposed when those tactics were used against something that it wanted. And so when the folks who were defending the forest started setting up, and, and I think Tree will probably talk a little bit more about this, encampments in the forest who were having organizing meetings, inviting people then to do tours in the forest, they were committing the type of civil disobedience that was replicable in places like Standing Rock and some other places. And so that was part of the struggle 
that we think really pushed the police and pushed the narrative, which got national attention. Um, and this is what scared, to be honest, what scared the authorities, which made the city of Atlanta, the county of DeKalb, the state of Georgia, and the federal government through the Homeland, through Homeland Security and the FBI basically form a loose task force in order to stop the movement that was penetrating people's hearts and minds and making a real push to make sure that this facility was never built. And lastly, I will say that you know, there were tactics that involved smashing a window at a corporate office. There were tactics that involved people going to people's homes and demonstrating and marching. But I'm one of those people who would say that I would rather property get damaged when it comes to saving the lives of people. And so I don't care if the Wendy's burnt down after Rashad Brooks was killed, if it's a warning to stop killing black people. And so I think we have to understand that there's a diversity of tactics and some may be outside the pale for some of us and for others, they may not be. But it's the diversity of tactics, the diversity of interests. We've had people who were various left ideological positions, people who are involved in civil rights, mainstream actors who all came together to say stop cop city. And it's that threat that made this coalition of legal forces gather to try to stop this movement. People uh, from the neighborhoods, you know, people that live in Atlanta, just uh, we start to show up and be in, you know, the land in Wulani. Uh, we organize, you know, parties, cleans up, podlocks. Uh, we organize a beautiful dance with the Muscogee people and the Thanksgiving in 2021. And we're just trying to be present there. And that's something that everybody can do. It's very simple. Just go. This is uh, the part that is, you know, Entrenchment Park. Entrenchment Creek Park is a public park that people has been using for a long time, you know, for exercise, for just having like a, a relaxed time in nature. Um, it has been visited by people from all these neighborhoods around. And, you know, I invite people. This is something really easy to do. You know, go to get to know the park, get to know the, the Wulani forest and, you know, be there. We were like organizing so many things over this year. And, uh, you know, we, we will keep going there and uh, keep like being in a relationship with Wulani, even though Ryan Milshap has been very aggressive and destroyed the parking place and part of the path that the bikes use. We will keep going there and we invite everybody to do that. That's a very simple thing to show up, to be there, that people can do. Wonderful. To me, what, what has made this movement so beautiful and so inspiring is people used to like to use this term di diversity of tactics and and we've gone a step further we've created something that actually mimics the forest itself this is an ecosystem of tactics so it's not a bunch mm. of things working against or in spite of each other it's several tactics working in conjunction and relation to each other and most of them have already been mentioned everything from the muscogee stomp dance to marches from preschoolers to uh, leafleting just the community like old school style to windows being smashed, as Kamau said, to people building tree houses in the forest and refusing to move and taking tear gas for these trees and punk shows and dance parties. And for some <laughs> people, it's hard to, and, and garden plantings and religious services and, 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 and tours and hikes and, which, and, wow. and protests. And a lot of these things are difficult for some people to understand why 
they matter or why they're connected to each other, but it's important to understand that we, we have to reach every aspect of human society because this affects every aspect of human society. And maybe a, a dance party or a punk show doesn't seem political to some people, or maybe a hike doesn't seem, or a children's march doesn't seem political, but to many people, anything that creates this spiritual connection between you and the forest and therefore you and the earth um, and therefore you and all of the other people in and around it, you now have something worth fighting for. You you have an unbreakable connection, an unbreakable bond, and, and you share that with millions of people. And and it's been very obvious to me and a lot of other people, and that's why there's uh, fundraisers for you know for five arrests, six arrestees in other in New York City, and that's why there's banner drops in other countries. It, it's why it's it's the most inspiring thing I've I think I've ever witnessed. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> that kind of gave me chills right there. <laughs> but on, on a darker note, um, the protesters who have been arrested, I did want to just touch on that, what they were arrested for, and the charges that they're facing. Um, can someone speak to that? Yes, yeah, six tree sitters were arrested and given state-level domestic terrorist enhancers. This is actually a really big deal legally, as far as I'm aware, and I um, maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong. It's the first time state domestic terrorist charges have ever been levied against protesters in Georgia. Um, so it's a major step for for the police and for the film people to kind of take things to this to this level. Mm-hmm. And we should note that uh, as these people were being arrested, they were involved in no activity other than being in the forest. They were in tree houses, maybe one or two were on the ground. Uh, the police used rubber bullets. And so it's very important that people understand that at no point during the arrest or leading up to the arrest, uh, is there any any accusation whatsoever that these individuals who are arrested were engaged in anything other than at the time of their arrest um, than being in the forest. And so for them to put on these kind of charges, again, as Tree mentioned, these domestic terrorism charges, this is a way to attempt to chill movement activities, to mm-hmm. scare movement people, to scare organizing around this issue. And at first they were denied bail. And only after a motion to have a second bail hearing were they granted bail. And they were granted bail uh, because the evidence that was presented was so ridiculous that even the judge had to grant, relatively speaking, low bails to these six defendants, which, um, to my knowledge, uh, they've all now been bailed out. The Atlanta Solidarity Fund has been doing uh, the work of collecting resources to make sure uh, that these folks can have representation and mm-hmm. to make sure uh, that their bail could be paid and they could be supported as they um, are, are let out and have to face these charges. And yeah, we will definitely include links to the Atlanta Solidarity Fund in the episode description. Um, and we'll do plug more plugs later in this episode as well. Is it like, um, you know, they had such a spectacular operation with all these, like, police cars. They blocked the avenues around there just to go after six peaceful, you know, tree seeders, people protecting the trees, people protecting the forest with no, you know, 
heavy guns, like the Proud Boys, like, you know, any other people. They were, like, just sitting there in the trees, and they were attacked with rubber bullets and tear gas, uh, shoot to them to where they were in the tree houses. And so, obviously, they have all these uh, spectacularities <laughs> to um, justify and to paint the picture of, like, dangerous terrorists people that is just like, you know, protecting the forest and standing up in solidarity with, with the neighbors of all these neighborhoods and um, and also with black people, you know, because uh, they're going to be the, the ones that are going to be more affected should this facility is built. So, yeah, it's, it was just a, a show. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about the vital role that indigenous and queer activists have played in opposing Cop City and defending the forest. I'd love to hear about how the resistance to Cop City connects with the land back movement. Um, Could you folks talk a little bit about the role that indigenous and queer activists have played in this movement and how this kind of ties into land back? I went to Oklahoma. I was interested in um, reach out to ceremonial leaders since historically, you know, ceremonial grounds has been always a very uh, autonomous spaces uh, where everything besides religious, uh, spiritual ceremonies and life, also politics have been discussed and resistance. Historically, so I um, reach out to, to one of the leaders, they call it the Miko, the leaders of uh, ceremonial grounds, of each ceremonial grounds is called Miko. Mm-hmm. I reached out to one of the youngest ones uh, that I knew was less old-fashioned, less conservative, and more progressive and interested also in um, all these issues of the war, the, the ecology, uh, social justice, etc. Mm-hmm. So I, I reached out to him and went in person uh, to his ceremonial grounds um, in eastern Oklahoma. And I sat with him and informed him and what, what was happening. They were interested in helping us out. Wow. Muscogee people were violently removed from these homelands, and they had a very, very, very hard and traumatic journey that is, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty recent to all the stories and all this hardship has been passed, you know, and uh, Muscogee people decide to move on and never look back. Mm. It was so much, yeah. you know, it was it's heartbreaking for, for like collectively this trauma. So they, they move, you know, move on. And uh, it has been... Uh, kind of like a taboo for for Muscogee people to talk about their homelands and oh. to you know try to reconnect collectively to the homelands. The only place uh, that has been interested to reconnect is uh, the ceremonial grounds. Not people that does culture or the people that do the political life, but the ceremonial grounds uh, because the Muscogee ceremonies have been going on for millennia. And that um, in this this part of the country, you know, it's a specific plants, you know, that uh, they they were using for their ceremonies. And that when they went to Oklahoma, they they had to you know adapt and they have to change some of the ceremonies because there is a different landscape. When I went there and talked to Miko Chibon Colonel, 
we both um, shared the same ceremonial grounds. He reached back and said that the, the ceremonial grounds, his family were dismayed that this is happening to their homelands and this violence continues and that they were they wanted to support in a way that what they can do. So we come up with the idea of like a visit and a storm dance, mm. which is like, you know, the major ceremony that the Muscogee people do. They do the storm dance four times a year. Wow. And um, we say, oh, my God, yes, please, please, yeah. we're going to, you know, do whatever in our power to get you here. So we quickly um, put a GoFundMe campaign and mobilize and starting to organize so they could come. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the Miko said that uh, this, you know, the day of mourning, at least called Thanksgiving, it should be a good time for them to do that. And uh, we wow. said, yes, that's that's like a really good idea. So, <laughs> yeah, things work out. So a, a delegation of Muscogee people from these um, grounds called Hilavi Ceremonial Grounds came all together, families, you know, grandmas, kids, and they they did the storm dance and they give a beautiful speech and they um, walk through the forest, reintroduce to, to Wilani and um, get to meet some of the people in the movement too. That was very important and a lot of people show up for that event uh, from our community, from the movement, but beyond, you know, people that were curious. Uh, that's an historic, was an historical event uh, because the Muscogee people have not, like I say, formally come back since they were um, forcibly removed from their homelands. And uh, so it was a big deal, you know, for, for, for them and for the community. The Miko, the, the leader of the ceremonial grounds, came back to Willani Forest, to Atlanta, to um, for a summit that we put together, you know, mm-hmm. um, in April this year. We call it the Muscogee Summit, and we invite more Muscogee people, scholars, activists, and um, some other uh, indigenous people too. And we had, a, you know, a beautiful event for two days, Wow. That was also very important as, um, uh, I don't know how to say, as kind of like a really, really tangible support for everybody that, yes, we are doing the right thing. And uh, we have kind of like the blessing of the people of this homeland and their support too. So that feel good for all of us yeah. uh, because people was like, what happened, what the indigenous people of this land had to say, what do they say about land back, you know, in this context mm. of what we're doing, trying to protect Wilani. I see there was a very good support and, and it surged and gave us a lot of momentum to keep going uh, from from April on. When uh, the, the Miko was at the summit in April uh, of this past year, I asked a question and I say, uh, me, I am a trans femme, that is a migrant from Mexico, mm-hmm. and that I have been, like I say in my introduction, this place multiple times. I asked the Miko, do I have a, a claim for land back as being Nahuatl and Apache uh, from other lands? Yeah. And I asked that to the Miko and uh, to all the other uh, Muscogee people in that uh, summit. But they were saying, yes, absolutely, you know, wow. all indigenous people that is this place as a claim on land back. Yeah. With land back, he talked a lot about stewardship and mm. the way that Muscogee people, we wish these uh, Wulani forest and the homelands to be steward. So we were talking a lot about that. And um, 
As we know, land back is a very broad term and that it can be understood in many ways, but uh, we have so many indigenous people in America and um, in North America. Every tribe, you know, every nation, every group of indigenous people has a very different interest and a very different understanding of what land backs means to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been in conversation with uh, indigenous people since that summit. There is one um, elder that lives in Kentucky. She's a citizen Parawatomi. For many uh, old-fashioned people that is a part of the American, in American uh, Indian movement, they understand uh, this very like pan-tribal definition of uh, land back for them is uh, the right for the, for the first stewards to go back to, to steward the land. You know, mm. so that's one one way of understanding yeah. uh, the land back. We are having conversations about uh, tell us how you wanted to sewer the land, you know, and that that has been an interesting conversation with uh, uh, forest defenders, people that is at the forestry cedars and the broad movement, because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously there is so many people in this in this movement and uh, we have so many uh, different ways of plugging in and participating and so many tactics. We understand stewardship very differently, but I think that yeah. we should, you know, uh, moving forward, put attention to what they say about stewardship, because that is part of a, a notion that we're trying to to move forward that we call radical stewardship and so that we all become, you know, stewards of, of the land with the Muscogee people. And that since they have a steward the land for a millennia and they have so much knowledge, you know, yeah. by us learning and talking and going deeper on what it means for us, for our communities to, to be radical stewards, we are, you know, doing uh, land back to, in this case, of the Muscogee people. We hope that by uh, deepening these conversations and acting up, we'll um, also uh, build more breaches with Muscogee people and with uh, indigenous people from the South that have been displaced that are in Oklahoma and give that a chance to be like in more communication and growing up on this understanding on how we steward these lands. Obviously, there have been, uh, you know, a lot of indigenous people like myself that are involved checking out the movement and the updates and like sharing information and donating. As for the participation of queer people, all along there's been an overwhelming presence of queer and especially trans people. Oh, awesome. And so that feels really good for me as yeah. being uh, trans and queer. And so um I, I feel like we were the majority, kind of, you know, yeah. um, wow. in, in the forest, in Willani Forest, yes. So we've been having, you know, queer people from all over the country, queer, trans, gender non-conforming people from all over the country and beyond, from Europe and, you know, from Latin America coming to stay. So a lot of people have passed through, and so it feels really good that we are on the forefront there at Willani. Now that we're going to... Uh, be pretty soon having two years and on this struggle we can take these like very important conversations about like land back rematriation and stewardship radical stewardship with us 
yeah, shout out to the to the queer trans um, community <laughs> in the U.S. and beyond because that we've been like amazing and fearless there, you know, in the forefronts. <laughs> Cheers to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> I love that. You know, I I keep thinking as you were talking about um, the importance of land back in terms of land stewardship and how horribly white settlers have mismanaged our our public spaces, our, our, our environments, it would be so much better to have people who understand, you know, a, a relationship between humans and our ecosystems, people who understand how to, you know, manage ecological cycles and things, who, who understand how to manage a forest in charge of these spaces, versus handing it over to corporations, to to folks that are going to flatten the forest, going to uh, increase uh, the risk of flooding for surrounding neighborhoods, going to make the air less clean, going to destroy this carbon sink that is one of the most important ways that we can fight the impending climate crisis that is growing worse every day. I feel like the importance of Indigenous land stewardship is growing all the time, and hopefully the recognition of how that is the right path forward for humanity and for the earth. I'm hoping that 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 recognition is growing, and I'm seeing it more and more reflected. It might be just because of the echo chambers that I'm involved in, but, but I have a lot of hope that people are starting to recognize the significance of land back and Indigenous stewardship of our natural spaces. The movement to stop Cop City has involved such a diverse coalition of activists in terms of identities and political ideologies. While it seems like diversity should be a strength for leftist movements, too often I've found that differences in identities and political ideologies become stumbling blocks in both online and in-person organizing. In light of all of this, I'm wondering how this coalition working to stop Cop City and defend the Atlanta forest has managed to both navigate and leverage this diversity. This is kind of like what I, I was going into earlier with the with the ecosystem. Yeah, it's definitely definitely been a strength. You know, the another way that the movement represents the forest is if you if you think about like these ancient, unbounded, unbordered, never ending forests. That that's what the movement is. It is this unbounded mm-hmm. thing that will get its roots literally anywhere it can and absorb whatever like spiritual or like physical nutrients it like needs to be stronger mm-hmm. that is like just how this movement and these forests just continue to reflect one another and it's all these different angles and all these different types of people like different ages backgrounds whatever every type of person coming together to understand that this is a crucial moment you know this isn't just yeah. like people were bored and wanted something to fight against. This is like a critical moment that will possibly determine the future of what it means to, to have a, a soul in the world. You know, if you're the kind of person who cares about the planet, who cares about other people who like values your neighbors and your coworkers and strangers who you don't yeah. know, how you interact with the world will be defined by whether or not these projects are allowed to proceed and they will not be allowed to proceed. Mm-hmm. This is very special struggle because we are in these forests that uh, Willani Forest doesn't really have from like the, the eye 
that the, the regular person doesn't have anything remarkable like, you know, waterfalls, like a spectacular river. But, you know, the people that have come to Ilani and is starting to like getting to know this, this particular place and this particular web of abundance um, are responding. And that uh, we have to stay there, stay hydrated, stay warm, stay um, fed. We are being helping um, the people that has been there for months, for weeks, for years, you know. Mm -hmm. We have been meeting people from all over, like for all, all kinds of backgrounds. Um, you know, it's like really, really wide, but not just like to talk, but to do things, to assist each other and, you know, to make sure that we are showing up for each other. You know, when the, we have the, the summit back in April that talk about this Muskogee summit, the most beautiful thing was to see how, um, you know, it was a very hot day, uh, weekend, those two days. They came and everybody was helping, everybody that came there to to uh, to hear a specific talk uh, or to meet somebody. So they were like involved and they started like, the, there was this energy, you know, the kids came and everybody is asking each other, do you have enough water? Do you want some food? Where <laughs> these chairs go? Where uh, can I put this trash? It was like everybody's mobilizing. So this is the spirit of the coming together at Wilani, where we are like having conversations and getting to meet each other, a way of uh, showing up for each other. And that's a really beautiful thing. You know, that's I think that that's the way to, re to really go to uh, build up this like uh, truly diverse movement and, and build up something new from there. Uh, and uh, Wilani has been, like uh, we say, the Wilani has been experiencing so much violence, you know, yeah. so much racism against the people that live around, you know, and yeah. that, that uh, you know, the land, nonetheless, is healing. Mm -hmm. And so that's what is like more heartbreaking to see that we don't let Wilani to heal because, you know, all these forces, um, all these interests are, are, are coming back to attack. It's a relentless attack. So it's like, that's what I say, it's a perfect, uh, perfect picture of what is happening in the ma ma macro in the war with uh, this uh, extractivist system with capitalism, yeah. you know, in Wilani. And yet the, the land herself is still resisting, you know, <laughs> and that is uh, stitching us. Amazing. And I love the idea that that diversity is benefiting the movement. The left needs to be learning from this, you know, <laughs> because too often we just get stuck into little fights about little differences. We don't focus on the common cause that we have. We have plenty of it on the left. You know, we we want to end police brutality. We want to end capitalism. We want to. There's so many things that we agree on. And still we we find ourselves just like fragmenting and fighting. So the fact that you folks have been able to do this and stay united and keep your eye on the prize is something that I want so many people to learn from in this country and around the world. So I'm so glad that you guys are putting the story out there like this, because this is a, such a vital, crucial story for how we can get things done and work together, come together. Kamau, I was wondering if you wanted to say anything about um, this diversity in the movement and, and the role that it's played. Yeah, I mean, I'll quickly add that I agree. I think the, the diversity of tactics and ideology 
has been great uh, in terms of coming together and coming around, working on this common cause. I want to emphasize, and it hasn't been a false unity. There's definitely mm-hmm. been struggles and issues that have come up, issues of race and class and gender, issues of tactics. Those things, of course, have come up. Um, mm-hmm. But I agree with uh, the other two guests that the thing that's been most important is that we've been able to hold together a core of organizers, radicals, revolutionaries, everyday people to continue to fight to stop Cop City, to stop this militarized police system from being built. We've, like you said, kept our eyes on the prize. That's been our major goal. And so even when there's been uh, issues, you've been able either to talk those issues out or you may have been able to work them out so that the vast majority of us could stay together and continue this fight. Hell yeah, I love that so much. (laughs) Gives me so much hope. (laughs) On that note, this has been so fantastic. Thank all of you so much for joining this call and for helping me tell this story. This is such an important one for other people to be learning from. And I wanted to just ask you, how can folks get involved? Um, What kind of calls to action would you like to make? Call to action would, for one, would be stopraiseyoung.com, defend theatlantaforest.com, which also has a virtual library, including a lot of, not all of, but a lot of the literature that's been written. Form an action committee in your local city. Start looking for involved corporations, companies in the project that may may have branches where you live and, and follow your heart. I love that call to action. <laughs> Fuck yeah, cheers to that. <laughs> really quickly, I'll add... Uh, I'm not sure when the program is airing, but we do have a demonstration coming up this Monday uh, at the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office demanding that the charges be dropped. But they can find that on social media. Uh, there'll be other act- similar actions in the future. Um, I completely agree. We, st- we definitely still want people to come down. There's other groups that are coming down to Atlanta, other partner organizations, individuals. We think the real way to beat this is not only for folks to continue to do the work that they're doing in other places to show solidarity, but in some ways we also have to turn this into, uh, I'll use this as the example, a standing rock where we do have people coming from out of town all over the world to show solidarity and to stand against the building of this monstrous uh, facility, which will do nothing but not only destroy land, but destroy lives. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I assume that uh, the show is going to have the links for uh, Mm -hmm. the Atlanta Solidarity Fund to donate and um, uh, uh, Instagram accounts of... uh, you know, Stop Cup City and Defend the Atlanta Forest. Mm-hmm. There is uh, constantly things happening in the forest. If people listen in Atlanta and are listening, I just invite you to go, you know, either in your own or with friends to check out the, the Gulani Forest and check out the page and see if you would like to, you know, join us for any of the activities. And that people that is not in town, you know, there are three has said, you know, join with friends and check out the shy campaign um, and the, the tactics and see what you can do, how you can reach out to corporations that are involved or individuals. Also live in houses and in neighborhoods, you know, and have neighbors. There are, uh, you know, all these other ways, uh, donations uh, and stay informed and uh, share 
information about the struggle of the forest updates hmm. and uh, for the queer people for my family and for indigenous people that may be listening that i would love you to uh get in touch visit um and uh, join us then we all when we are there we're going to be there and there is party we have fun you know we do all kinds of activities uh cultural religious and just for fun so people is getting together we learning to cook together to bring food as a potluck style every wednesday um around six uh so come check it out if you're in atlanta uh, the invitation is open to people to come to the forest and to come there with us too so yeah <laughs> i really want to take you up on that <laughs> it's that's a dream of mine to get over there and to show up in solidarity and to meet you folks in person would be so so lovely so well on that note folks thank you so much for joining us uh, i really really appreciate your time more than that i really appreciate your your dedication to this vitally important cause you folks are fighting the good fight so cheers to you <laughs> cheers thank you thank you for having us Hey, everyone. Thank you all for tuning into this episode. If you value the work that we're doing, we would deeply appreciate your support. This project involves a huge amount of research, networking, content creation, and editing. You can lend a hand by giving us a rating and writing a review, or you can contribute financially by signing up on Patreon. To all of our existing patrons, thank you so goddamn much. Your support makes a huge difference for this anti-capitalist project. Much love to you all. Cheers and solidarity.